Some of you might know the name Kent Hughes, R. Kent Hughes. He was the pastor of College Church of Wheaton for 27 years, if our memory serves correctly. We became friends a few years ago, a prince of an expositor. He's written a series of commentaries. I, would, I, I like to call them 12th grade educated commentaries. They're not like you need a seminary degree or a graduate degree to understand him. He writes very well and very cogently to the 12th grade mind and up. And he has two volumes on the little gospel of Mark that are remarkable. And what struck me when I pulled this off the shelf a few weeks back was he begins chapter one of the gospel of Mark talking about Mark 10, 45, which is a verse we're going to touch on today. He begins by telling a story in the opening of Dr. Emile Victor Rue, R-I-E-U. Some of you, do you remember the Penguin classic little books, the Penguin books? How many of you remember reading those? Uh, he translated the very first one, which was Homer's Odyssey, and he became the general editor for all these publications. And I think to date there are over a thousand of books that fall into the Penguin Classic Library. Uh, some years ago they repackaged like the top 80 or something, and they're, they're little short books, but they're all sort of benchmark stories in, uh, in culture. And uh, the, the Penguin Classic series, he was so good at it that he became the general editor of the project. Well, later in his life, in his 60s, they asked him to oversee the translation of the Gospels. And I'll read what Hughes writes. He was 60 years old. He had been an agnostic all of his life. The publisher approached him again and asked him to translate the Gospels. When Rue's son heard of this, he said, quote, It'll be interesting to see what father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make a father. It did not take very long. Within a year, E.V. Rue, a lifelong agnostic, responded to the Gospels he was translating by becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. The Gospels have the power to transform. It is the very word and work and the person of Jesus Christ that in and of itself is powerful. We don't have to be clever or persuasive or pejorative or clever or use technology, all of which are fine to use properly in the proper setting. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the accounts of his story, the accounts of his life, that is the transformational work of the gospel. It is simply the words and works of Jesus Christ that change lives. Whether you were a child when you came to Christ, whether you were a teen going through some challenges and some deep angst in your teenage years, a college student who was searching for God, searching for meaning, a single adult, maybe you came to Christ later. Maybe your spouse brought you to the Lord, led you to, the, to Christ, explained the gospel to you. Maybe you came to Christ after some crisis, a loss of life, a death in the family, someone you loved, a divorce. The gospel has the power to change. It is the good news, the work of Jesus Christ. As we lead up to Easter, it's very typical for churches and church traditions to follow a calendar. You might have come out of a background that actually had a church calendar. I grew up with a church calendar of ordinary time, of Advent, of what led up to Easter. And often they're sort of compartmentalized into different ways. Um, the, the gospel accounts leading up to Easter are typically a Holy Thursday or Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. And some will add in a, Pas a Pentecost Sunday after that, rounding out the church calendar. This is a good thing as long as the ritual and the routine 
Don't become like the Lord's table. We do it all the time. It's part of what we do as a church. That's the danger of anything we do repetitiously. The benefit, of course, is to remind us because we always forget. And not just to remind us of what we know, but perhaps to learn, to expand our knowledge, to know a little bit more of the story. When you came to Christ, whether it was a child or a teen or an adult, or maybe you have not yet come to Christ, but when you come to Christ, some changes happen. Uh, For me, the overwhelming change that still will dismantle me very quickly is that I was forgiven of all my sins. It still overwhelms me to think that he forgives me of everything I've ever done and that, that I continue to do. And that just dismantles me. That's my soft spot that he forgives again and again and again and again. Maybe you had joy when you came to Christ. Maybe it was out of a crisis. Maybe as a child it made sense to you, and you've grown perhaps some in your life of Christ. But if you were to go back to the time you trusted Christ, however old you are, and where you are today in your spiritual journey, are you any more ready for heaven than the day you trusted Christ today? If the day you and I trusted Christ was the day we were forgiven, we were brought into the family of God, we were made complete, we're heirs to a kingdom we couldn't ever accomplish, that we are a child of the king, all the things that go along with that, our salvation is secure forever. If the day we came to Christ, that was sealed and done, why are you still here? Why am I still here? Were we any more ready for heaven then or now? And what is our purpose in between those two events? We're looking at a walk. We're looking at four weeks of a journey. The walk today toward Jerusalem. The perspective for the believer in Christ is that we're following Christ, not merely our life plan. And the unique challenge of the Western mindset, what do we comprise? 3% of the global population? The English-speaking Western mindset, three, maybe four percent of the global population. And the challenge of living in this culture, which we are extraordinarily blessed to have, and we can enjoy the good stuff of life, but the unique challenge of living in this context is what I call the if-then. We think if we do this, then that will happen. Pragmatically, if we live below our income, we stay out of debt, we save, we invest, we plan carefully. If you do that, more than likely, then you will be fine financially, right? It's a fact. Does it apply spiritually? If you live the Christian life and check the boxes, read the Bible, pray, get to know him, spend community, if you do that, then will your life be okay? And the subtlety of the Western mindset, I think, is so ingrained in our processes that we live with the Christianity of if-then. It's the warp and woof of the fabric of the Western mindset. Explain this to someone who lives in poverty, in a mud hut, with no insurance, with no health plan, with no retirement package, with no 401k, with no tax shelter. Explain this to someone who lives where they've never even seen a medical Care, medical care of any kind. How most of the world lives and how antiquity lived. And it's not bad. Do not hear me say it's bad. Hear me say, can you take out the threads of the Western notion of if then and see this Christian life the way Christ intended? 
That to me is the great challenge for the Western believer. The walk that changed the world in our setup begins in Caesarea Philippi. If you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, through God's Holy Spirit inspiring Mark, he gives three prophecies. Jesus explains prophetically what's going to happen to him in the days ahead as he heads to Jerusalem to be crucified on Calvary. And in chapter 8 we have what's often called Peter's confession of faith. Caesarea Philippi is in the far north. It's almost as far north as Jesus ever went in what we call the Holy Land today, the land of Jerusalem. And you'll notice in chapter 8 of Mark, verse 27, Mark 8, 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. On the way he questioned the disciples saying, who do people say that I am? They told him saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. He continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. Now, Caesarea Philippi, if you go, when you go to Israel, it is God's will for you to go to Israel. If you don't go now, you will go in the future, I promise you, but I I think you should get a preview. Uh, If you go now, we'll take you to the northern part of Caesarea Philippi, and you'll see this enormous grotto, this huge rock out of which a spring flows. That spring is known as Banius or Panius, it's a slur. And out of that rock, this water comes, and there's niches carved in the rock where the god, is, the god Pan, the Greek god, Cyrex, was the bird that made a noise. It's a combination animal. If you ever saw the Hercules cartoon, you saw Pan. And this little image of Pan, the half-goat man with, who made this fluty noise, the Pan, Panius, Banius. You'll see all the niches where the idols used to be. They were stolen years ago. That's where Jesus tells them in the other gospel accounts, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Behind the setting of Panius is this spring that comes out. And as you go down the falls, we take you to an area called the Panius Falls, and you're just amazed at the amount of water that comes out of this fall that feeds into the Jordan River. But as you stand there, the object lesson is impossible to miss. It's the giant rock And Jesus says, you're Peter, and upon this rock, referring to himself, Jesus, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, and what? The gates of hell will not prevail. And more than likely, he's referring to the hole behind him where the water came from, where the mythology of the day was, that was the gate of hell. So he takes him as an object lesson to say, look, I'm going to build a church on myself. I'm a rock. Peter, you're a little pebble. I'm a rock. I'm going to build it on myself, and nothing's going to stop it. This is the first of three prophecy predictions Jesus gives about his soon coming crucifixion. The other one's in Mark 9, 31. They're easy to remember. 8, 31, 9, 31. And technically it's 10, 32, but it's easy to remember 31s, so that'll get you there. 8, 31, 9, 31. And we're going to look at chapter 10 this morning. It's 105 miles from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem. So this is the journey, the walk that Jesus is going to take. Beginning at Caesarea Philippi, he's going to walk with his disciples along the way to Jerusalem where he will face his crucifixion. Now, 
when the disciples hear things in the Gospels, it's very easy to pick on them. We can, we can call Peter impetuous. We can say all sorts of mean things about the disciples. I've come to the conclusion over the years, there's two things, two ways to look at the disciples when they say things that are just kind of goofy. A, they didn't understand. B, they didn't want to understand. And the reason I've concluded that is because that's how the Christian looks at the Bible. <laughs> A, we don't understand. B, we don't want to understand. So when the Bible says something clearly, we don't want to obey it. When the Bible gives us very clear moral lines, we don't like those, and we lump them together as puritanical and old-fashioned and out-of-cultural context and you know, Paul hated women and so forth and so on because we don't like what we read. So we either approach it one of two ways. We truly may not comprehend it or we don't want to. The disciples were no different. And each of these three prophecy predictions Jesus gives about his soon coming death, the disciples have a reaction and then they learn something. And that's the good response of a disciple. We might react poorly, we might react incorrectly, but do we learn? And that's precisely what we see in the pattern of the disciples. Uh, what the disciples did not understand until later was that the glorification of Christ and the benefit to them would only come after Christ suffered. For Christ to go to Jerusalem to them, we we're going to read in a moment, they're amazed and they're afraid. They were looking for a political Messiah. This is hard for Westerners to comprehend. We think of a republic, a democratic process. We have three branches of government, and we think of all the pieces and all the chess and all the politics that happen, and we worry about who's elected, who's not elected, who's going to be the next this and that. I do. We get all anxious and tied up in it, and we play chess with it all, and we worry about it. For the Jew, it was very simple. Messiah was going to be at once the political and religious leader. So there was one king, not a president and a cabinet and an executive branch and a legislative branch and a house of Congress. There was a king. And the king ruled perfectly. And they lived in a time, we might say, not that differently than we live. The Jews were oppressed by Rome. They didn't like being oppressed by Rome. Rome is occupying their religious center. And they want Rome out. They don't like the scribes and Pharisees. Let's call them the Republicans and Democrats. They don't like them. They want to throw the bums out. They want good religious leaders who are doing justice and honest and tell the truth and do things the right way, just like we do when we want to elect an official, right? So for the, the Jewish mind, the pious Jew, Messiah was going to come and establish a kingdom and that kingdom was going to be under God's rule, God's way, and get rid of these issues. So understand when the disciples react certain ways, don't just dismiss them or say they're dumb or obdurate. They either did not understand or they could not yet put the pieces together to comprehend. After Acts chapter 2, we'll see a 180 in the disciples' view of things. Jesus is telling them here, I must suffer Wait, you're supposed to be the Messiah. Right, but I'm going to suffer. And it's going to be a long time coming before you get the kind of kingdom that you want to have. Well, let's look at first the disciples' reaction and then the disciples' lesson. And let me read chapter 10 of Mark, beginning at verse 32. Chapter 10 of Mark, 
beginning at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall become slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Number one, let's look at the walk up to Jerusalem. The walk up to Jerusalem. We've pointed this out many times before. No matter where you are, north, south, east, west, you go up to Jerusalem. They're 105 miles north of Jerusalem. You might argue they're going up in elevation, but that wasn't the point. Yes, they were going up to Mount Zion, up to Mount Moriah. They were going up to worship. But it wasn't geography that was in mind with the word. Is that when you go to worship God, you're always going up to worship God. Mark gives us a precise detail that is often overlooked. Some of your Bibles say he's walking on ahead. Some of your Bibles say he was leading the way. It's a very unusual description Mark uses. It's not just as he said, let's go, and they're following him. There's an intentionality behind this phrase. It says, Christ is going somewhere. And he's leading his men with them. The 12 are still intact at this point. And they're amazed, and they're afraid. We don't have time to look at the stories, but you can look at the accounts where Jesus has been in close uh, situations where he's almost gotten in trouble and caught and killed and so forth. They don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They don't want to go through those territories. They don't want to go 105 miles south to Jerusalem. But Christ says we're going to Jerusalem and they're going to follow him because Christ can only be glorified through suffering. Now, Jesus' determination to go amazes them and, more importantly, makes them afraid. I want to talk a little bit about that word afraid. 
Fear is used a number of times in the New Testament. It's phobos. We get phobia from it in Greek. But I want you to feel the weight of their fear. In Matthew 17, chapter, chapter 17, verse 6, we have a fear that's like this. Peter, James, and John are pulled aside from the twelve, and they go up to the transfiguration. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are transfigured. Their form and appearance are changed. Their clothes are gleaming white. It's like an epiphany, the bright white light. And Peter, James, and John witness this experience. When they witness this, a voice comes out of the cloud, and in Matthew 17, 6, it says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified, same word. It's used again in Matthew 27, 54, when the rocks shake, the earthquake occurs, the veil is rent from the top to the bottom, not humanly from the bottom to the top, but spiritually from the top to the bottom. When rocks split open, when tombs open and people come out of the graves. You imagine being a Roman centurion guarding the uh, sealed tomb of Jesus Christ and all these dead bodies start coming out of the graves? These are real zombies. But they're alive. They're not walking like a zombie. They're alive. And it says that the Romans were terrified. I love the expression in in John's, uh, John's revelation at Patmos when he sees the angel of the Lord and he says, I fell on my face like a dead man. It could be a great title for a book. I fell on my face like a dead man. How often in the New Testament when an angel appears, or the old, people are terrified, they're afraid. There's none of this, you know, touched by an angel nonsense. They're terrified. They're afraid. They're scared. That's the same sense. They're amazed and they're terrified that they've got to go back to Jerusalem. He's told the disciples twice before in the Gospel of Mark what to expect. He tells them a third time. Each time Jesus tells them in 831, 931, and 1032, he gives them more information. Isn't that the way our Lord teaches us? He doesn't give us the whole kit and caboodle and say, obey it and be perfect. He's patient with us. He was patient with Abram, Abraham. He gave him a little bit of the covenant, then a little more, then a little more. He explains things to us. We might say he gives us conditioning prior to change. He's kind and patient as a teacher. The disciples will have one of two reactions every single time. They will not understand or they do not want to understand, just like you and me. Well, they're going up to Jerusalem, and for him to explain it more fully this time, he chooses eight very vivid verbs. You've seen them, you've read them, we perhaps know them too well. Let's look at them briefly. Verse 33, delivered. Delivered is to be handed over, it's to be betrayed to someone else. He's going to be delivered over to the religious leaders of the day. Remember, they're lying in wait. They've been trying to trap him. They've schemed. They're going to bring false testimony in to convict him. They want him dead. And Christ tells them straight up, he's going to be delivered. You see, the disciples were going for a coronation. Jesus is going for a crucifixion. The second verb is condemned. Condemned to death, it reads in your English Bible. It's a pronouncement of guilt. You know, it's one thing if we catch a perpetrator in America, in the Western culture, we say what? Innocent until proven guilty. And we have due process. We don't rush to judgment. So we go through a whole 
careful process of arresting a person, booking them, of getting evidentiary material together. The defense and prosecution have to share information. We're going to be sure we get all the stories. Don't rush to judgment, right? That's our whole system. And not in the ancient world. Jesus says, not only am I going to be delivered, I'm condemned to death. He's telling them before he even hits the ground in Jerusalem, I'm going to be condemned to be killed. You need to understand this. Thirdly, hand him over. Hand him over is the same verb. In verse 33, our English Bible says delivered. Here it's in an active voice. He's going to not only be delivered, but it's, it's, a, it's a vivid process of we're going to grab him by our hands and we're going to give him to the scribes and Pharisees and the religious police of the day. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be delivered, handed over. Fourth, mocked. Make ridicule of. Make sport of, the word means. We have a national crisis of bullying. You hear all these programs about stopping bullying, especially with social media. How many children have taken their own life because of bullying on social media? People are bullied at school, junior high, elementary high school. Um, multiply that times a factor of 10 when you mock someone. They're mocking Christ. They'll jam a crown of thorns on his head. They'll blind him and spin him around, slap him, and try to get him to identify who slapped him and make prophecies. They'll have sport with him. Fifth, they will spit on. I had not seen this until this week. The only time this phrase is used is when they spit on Jesus. The Sanhedrin and the Romans, the Roman guards, are the groups that spit on him. When someone spits in your face, it is the ultimate human insult. This is what I think of you, and they spit on their face. Six, to be scourged. There were at least three tiers of scourging within the Roman guard. The first was sort of a slap on the wrist, we might say. It could shred you. But a true flogging, and you've read articles and seen depictions of this, if you saw Mel Gibson's Passion, probably a little over the top, but probably not that much. The flagellum was a leather tong strap with pieces of bone and glass and shards and metal when they had it, and they would use it to rip the flesh off the back of a person. So you have the, the first stage, sort of a punitive warning. But the next two levels of scourging were preliminary to a crucifixion, to a capital offense of being killed, and that's the scourge Christ refers to. Seven is kill. The meaning's clear enough. It doesn't need an explanation. I'm going to kill him. And eight, he'll rise again. Seven of the verbs are very downward, suffering, discouraging, depressing, terrifying, uh, a fearful experience that he's telling them what he's going to endure. And then, oh, by the way, I'll rise again. Delivered, condemned to death, handed over, mocked, spit on, scourged, killed, and he'll rise again. Two lessons on this walk to Jerusalem. Number one, no matter how difficult the journey, the disciple learns, the disciple grows, the disciple presses on. And Jesus is telling them from the moment he is integrating with them, I'm here for a mission. I'm here to obey my father perfectly and completely in every respect, and I'm going to go die on a cross for your sins. That is unthwarted, unthwartable, if it's a word. It can't be stopped. The disciple is along for the journey. 
he or she is along for the walk. We're walking with him. The metaphor begins early in Scripture. It begins when Abraham leaves his country and goes to a place God's going to show him. It's chock full of the wisdom literature. The walk, the way. My son, don't go the way of the adulteress. Go the way of the wise woman. It's all through Scripture. It's a journey. It's a sojourn. It's a pilgrimage. It's our path. It's the way we live life. One foot in front of the other. And the disciple is to follow Christ. He's led the way, we're to follow him. That's the objective. If the moment you came to salvation, you were forgiven of your sins, you were an heir to the kingdom of God, you're adopted as one of his children, you will live forever with Jesus Christ, why are you still here? Why am I still here? Because we follow him. We press on and we learn. This if-then is a dilemma. It's a dilemma for me. Maybe it's not for you. It is for me. Because I look at life as an if-then. If I do these things, then these things may happen. But you know, they don't always happen. In fact, they happen, it seems, rarely and infrequently. Children rebel. You go through a divorce. You get cancer. Talking to someone in the hallway today. 55-year-old friend went in for surgery and died. Bad things happen. Our children break our hearts into a thousand pieces. A person that said they loved us and bowed a vow breaks the vow and walks away. We lose our job. We lose our finances. Which one of us in this room has not been touched by cancer in our own family or in a very close relative? Which one of us in this room has not been touched by dementia or Alzheimer's or something bad? Which one of us in this room hasn't been touched by a friend that's lost everything? Oh, this is a cheery sermon. Thanks, Michael. (laughs) You see, that if-then thing can be dangerous. I am not saying we don't enjoy the good stuff of life. Goodness me, don't hear me say that. But hear me say clearly, there is no guarantee of if-then. Spiritually, there is no guarantee. In fact, the contrary. Secondly, a growing disciple looks beyond self. One of the questions I ask often, and I'm weird, I know not everybody thinks about these questions. Um, Cindy reminds me often, I am very weird, I know that. (laughs) You're stuck with me, I'm sorry. But... um, I wonder a lot, am I any more like Jesus Christ than I was last year? Am I any more like Christ when I came to Christ at 15 years of age? And if not, why not? If I'm still here for some reason that I may not be able to clearly, I have a life vision statement. I've done all, I've checked the boxes, taken the test, it's in a folder, I've done it. It's in the front of my Bible. It's all there. Big deal. What's God's plan? I don't always know. That's why it's a life of faith. Confident assurance of things hoped for with the convictions of things not yet seen. Faith isn't confident assurance of the things hoped for because we know the outcome. It's confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. We live by faith. We take a walk of faith. We take a step. The disciples, come with me, gentlemen. Now, don't miss this. James and John want to be at the right and left. Now, you have to read some humor in this. You've got to back up to Matthew 20, 20. Salome is the mother. 
with all due respect to my Jewish friends, this is a Jewish mother. And she tells her two Jewish boys, go up there and ask Jesus to sit left and right. Because they all think they're going to go down there and he's going to be the king. You want to be in the first, you want to get in the first chairs? Go ask him, go ask him. And you got to love Christ's response. Will you do whatever you want? We want you whatever you want. Wouldn't you like to ask Jesus, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I want you to do. I would. Come on, be honest. I want you to do whatever I want you to do. Can you be baptized with my baptism? Sure. Can you drink the cup? Sure. Okay, you get it. Both of those were images of death and suffering. And then he says, but right and left, that's not up to me. That's up to my father. Now the ten get mad. Because it's just like everybody else. Well, why are, they getting, why are they getting whatever they want, for goodness sakes? What does Jesus do? Does he put his index finger in them? Notice something. He only upbraids the scribes and Pharisees, those who hated him and wanted him dead. He does not upbraid those who are learning, those who are students, those who are disciples. And twice in this passage, he pulls them aside. Let me tell you guys something. Don't miss this, is what he's saying. I'm going to go suffer and die. Don't do this like the Gentiles. Don't lord this over people. They wanted a position at right and left. You guys, you're missing the point. Don't do as Gentiles do and lord it over them. Look at what I did, Jesus says. I didn't come to lord over you. I came to serve you. I came to die for you. And if I came to die for you, and I've asked you to follow me to Jerusalem to die, there's going to be suffering on the way. Afterward, there'll be glorification in heaven. I can't tell you who's going to sit where. That's my father's business. But I am going to ask you to follow me in the suffering. Now, have you ever grown apart from suffering? We think, delusional, Western mindset we are, Bigger, better, newer, more. If God blesses everything, that's what I want. That's what I want. I confess. My name's Michael. I want success. I want wealth. I want happy children. I want them all to love Jesus. I want my wife to have all the grandchildren she wants. I want to live happily ever after. I want to go like my grandfather did, quietly in his sleep. Not screaming like the passengers in his car. <laughs> I want life to work the way I want it to work. It's a fantasy. The only time you learn, I would bet, a nickel, is when you suffer. Gentlemen, don't do it like the world. Don't lord it over them. Don't vie for positions of power and authority so you can do what you want, sit where you want. I want you to follow me, and my road is going to involve suffering and death and then resurrection and glorification. You know why you and I are still here? I can't answer all the in-betweens, but I can tell you we're here to suffer well. You see, a growing disciple thinks less about me and more about Christ and others. That's the point. A growing disciple thinks less about self and more about Christ and others. If I'm following Christ, I'm not following Michael Easley's vision, which is a great vision plan that, you know, I could share and write a book on and tell you how to write a vision. Whoop-de-doo. 
Are you following Christ? Are you, am I, any more like Jesus Christ the day we came to Christ till today? And if not, why not? So if, not when, or when, not if, the problems come. Children break our hearts. Friends break our hearts. Dear friends, we love and work diligently to help go through horrible divorces. People lose their businesses. They die of cancer. They get dementia. They have Alzheimer's. On and on it goes. We're single. We don't want to be single anymore. Our marriage failed. Our children have just broken our hearts into a thousand pieces. We don't have grandchildren yet. On and on and on and on. I don't mean to be maudlin, guys. I really don't. The question I'm asking you as we walk to Easter is, are you, am I, any more like our Savior than the day we trusted Jesus Christ? And if not, why not? And if in his kind back of his hand, he allows you and me difficulties, injustices, enemies, troubles, children who break our hearts, illnesses that plague us, how we respond to that is what he's interested in, not getting through it. And being the man he wants you to be, the woman he wants you to be, regardless of the circumstances. Because the disciple wants to be like his master. Not like a master, but like his or her master. And your master came to serve, to be a ransom for many. Our Father in heaven, we approach these weeks that lead to what we call Easter with a sense of humility, hopefully a renewed interest in who you are and what you've done. Help us to live by faith. Help us to live in, the, in between well, not simply trying to make life better or work it all out or figure it out or make it easier, but to approach the difficulties with an open heart, with open hands, with a welcoming nature that while we may loathe it, a disciple follows, a disciple presses on, a disciple learns, and we want to be like our master. Erase the bad theology and bad trappings that we've somehow glommed onto our Christianity. Yes, we can enjoy the great stuff of life and the many blessings you give us, but help us to hold them open-handedly and help us to live in such a way to please you, not merely ourselves. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you loved us first. In your name we ask and pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.